0: everyone. It is Zoe here and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast. This is the show that's going to give you all the ideas, tools, and validation you need as we navigate our lives together as mothers. In August, to give me and the team a bit of a break from our rather hectic recording schedule, we re-release some of our most popular, most loved episodes from the first six months of the year. And I am so excited for you to hear this one. Here it is. Just a quick ask from me before we dive into this week's episode. You might not know this, but we are a really small team behind the scenes at MotherKind, but we have a massive ambition to support millions of mothers to feel more confident, happy and empowered. And even though we've got this incredible back catalogue of over 300 episodes, I really do feel like we are just getting started. And often you lovely listeners will ask me how you can support the podcast and help us reach more mums. So I've thought of a really easy way that you can do that. Because from today, you can subscribe to the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which over 70% of you do. So, for just $3.99 a month, you can support our Motherkind mission and you get all the podcasts ad free going forward. It's really easy. All you need to do is just go to your Apple Podcasts app, find Motherkind, find the section at the top where it says support the podcast and enjoy ad free episodes. Click on that. You'll then have a seven-day ad-free trial where you can hear what it feels like to listen to the podcast with no ads whatsoever, and then you move on to pay $3.99 a month. And every single penny of that money will go towards empowering more mothers with this incredible guests, ideas, and tools that we share week after week on the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Whether you subscribe or not, I am incredibly grateful that you are here and thank you for being part of the Motherkind mission. Okay, on to this week's episode. This week's guest, I have a lot to thank for in terms of how much she has helped me. And that guest is Dr. Nicole LaPera, better known as the holistic psychologist. And I want to tell you a little story of why this episode is so important to me and why Dr. Nicole has helped me so much. So when I was pregnant, I was reading all of the parenting books about being a safe space for your children, being able to hold their emotions and set boundaries. And I was thinking, yep, that sounds all good. I can definitely do that. That's the type of parent that I want to be. And then I became the parent, Jessie. My now seven-year-old arrived and What I found was something completely different. What I found was that when she would have, you know, particularly when she got into the toddler years, these big emotional breakdowns and tantrums, you know, completely normal. But what was happening in me is that I would almost dissociate. I found it so hard to stay with those huge emotions. I didn't understand why. And if I'm honest, I would beat myself up about that. I would tell myself that I wasn't a good enough parent. I would know that that is not the type of parent I want to be. You know, I so wanted to be and want to be still a parent that can hold boundaries, that can let their child have all the emotional reactions in the world. And I'm just lovingly there, present, being with them. That is not what was happening early on in my parenting journey. What was happening is that it felt like my body would almost go offline. I wonder if you know that feeling where you're there physically, but mentally I would just go offline. And I did not understand what was happening. And so I started to dive into the work of Dr. Nicole and others. And I learned about the nervous system and regulation and it completely changed. It completely changed my life because what I learned was that the reason I was going offline and dissociating was because that essentially was my system just trying to keep me safe around big emotions that didn't feel safe at the time. I learned about how to regulate myself. Dr. Nicole taught me so much about what happens in our body and our nervous system. And she talks a lot to it in this episode. So you're going to learn it too. But the biggest thing that I've learned is that there was nothing wrong with me. What I had was a skills gap. I had a way of coping around big feelings, which was to go offline, to numb out, to not really be there. And that wasn't serving me anymore. That didn't make me a bad parent. That didn't make me shameful or guilty. Any of the things that I was saying to myself, that made myself a really amazing, loving parent with a skills gap. I didn't know how to regulate myself when that was happening. And that is what this episode is going to give you. And the reason I feel so excited about it is because this is what I needed. All the way back when Jesse was little, and I think I just started Motherkind, or maybe the idea was in my head, I really, really needed this content. And it actually makes me quite emotional because my mission with Motherkind has always been to create the content that helps us as the mother and as the parent, not giving you more strategies of, you know, what you need to be doing. I think by this point, a lot of us know that. So... I feel really proud of this episode. It is definitely what I needed. I really hope that this is going to resonate and land and support you. Learning about the nervous system, learning about regulation has changed my life. It's changed my girls' lives because I'm a completely different parent around them. I honestly feel like I have a new nervous system these days. My girls can have massive meltdowns. I'm able to just stay completely present and calm most the time. Not all the time, obviously, most of the time. And I feel like that is something that I've developed. I did not know how to do that. So I've talked about for a really long intro. This is a long intro for me, but I just wanted you to know that background about why I feel so excited and passionate about this episode. If it resonated with you, please do share it. Let's get this wisdom out to as many mothers as we possibly can. Here it is. Oh Nicole, I'm so excited to reconnect. We first spoke March 2021. Since then, you've had a global bestseller too. (laughs) You've had impact and growth of your community and the reach of your work seriously beyond most creators' wildest dreams. So since we last connected, (laughs) What's that been like for you? Like, I'm so curious. What have you learned about humanity and
1: the world having this much reach and impact? Actually, it took me a minute to even locate myself in time that it has been as long as it's been in terms of the calendar year of how much time has passed since you and I spoke last. And I think that very much describes kind of how it is for me, you know, having the opportunity to create these things, a lot of ideas that have been coming to mind, I've been gathering over the course of life and now being at a place where, you know, I have the support around me, I have the opportunity and the possibility to begin to communicate some of these ideas to at this level of scale whether or not you're following me online um on all the social media accounts or whether or not you're purchasing the books that I'm putting out being able to communicate with so many humans is a quite overwhelming and b and a continued opportunity for me to stay grounded in myself. And what I mean when I say that is I think one of the things, you and I were just even joking about me being a career student, I love and I've succeeded and I've found safety historically in my own life, personal and professional, by always doing things. So for me, having all of these ideas is a delicate balance between giving myself a continued opportunity to remember that I'm only as competent. I'm only able to be a channel and communicate these things if I am caring for the human beneath all of this. So it's so funny when I'm asked something like this, because I'm like, wow, I'm busy. And at the same time, I'm trying not to be always super busy so that I can have moments of rest, integrate the work that I'm doing as a healing human alongside of everyone. (laughs) I always observe that.
0: We start doing this work, which is your story too, for ourselves. And then the moment in, you know, as you describe that we start to share that publicly, then it's so easy to forget where it started to be doing it for ourselves. I've experienced that myself on a minuscule scale compared to you, but I have experienced that too. I forget to practice often what I'm preaching.
1: Yes. And I met with this, you know, even on the daily, I noticed for me, after having taken time to carve out the opportunity to even wake up early enough to have what one would traditionally know as a morning routine, where, for me, caring for my body, its physical presence, giving myself those moments of grounded, you know, attunement to just how I am in any given day in any given moment. The second I wake up, what's always also present, is all of the work, is the endless to-do list, is the emails, is the new project that I'm just as equally excited about working on. So for me, it's this real-time, moment-to-moment, what am I going to do first thing in the morning? Am I going to shift right into work performing mode? Or can I create that space to, again, care for that vessel? So when I say it's in real time, I mean, it's as recent as this morning. And if I'm being honest, there are some days where I go into the project because it's exciting. Because again, it's that outlet for me. So not all of the time am I in care of my physical vessel. And I do have to then have that hard conversation of, wait a minute, Nicole, you need to slow down, stop. As exciting as all of this is, if you are going to burn yourself out or overstep your boundaries and limits, it's not going to be that flow situation that you want it to be. Exactly. And I think every mother
0: listening to this will relate to that push pull of wanting to serve our families wanting to give it's so exciting like looking after the children I mean always exciting do you know what I mean like that that sort of push pill and we also have to tend to ourselves as you just described so beautifully so that we don't burn out so that we can give from a place of being full and grounded as opposed to scraping the bottom of the cup as it were
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more that that conversation really 100% applies to parenting, to being a participant in a family. And I think it's really natural. And some of us are really conditioned or taught this belief that always serving other people is A, even possible, or B, makes us a good parent, a good partner in service. I'm selfless. though. So to speak to your point, it's the cliche I think that many of us love to hate, which is we have to put our oxygen mask on first. We have to pour into our cup first to the extent that so many of these well-intentioned ideas, we can't live into them. We can't be that grounded presence because we're not sleeping well, we're not eating well, we're not dealing with stress and we're setting ourselves up to only be reactive in those moments. So it's the counterintuitive, as I always speak about. Concepts are great. It's putting these concepts in action. It's hitting that pause in that moment where we are of two minds, where we do want to serve the little one who's in need of us. But knowing to be a grounded presence for that little one, I might need to back out of the room and take some deep breaths before I then enter the crying or the upset that I'm going to enter into
0: so true the way you say that. I think there won't be anyone listening that hasn't heard of that oxygen mask analogy, and yet I struggle all the time to put that into practice. How does someone take a concept like that oxygen mask and put it into
1: practice more consistently? I think what's important and worthy of celebration, Zoe, is acknowledging the current habits that we are practicing, that are happening outside of our awareness, our inability to tend to ourselves, right? Always overpass our limits to be externally oriented or always looking at someone else because to see the current happenings, the patterns, how I am showing up in my world then allows me the opportunity to make those new choices. And I'm emphasizing this because... I think like a horse with blinders on, we don't for many of us. And one of the major reasons why I even created this workbook, a kind of guided path of discovery to see all of these subconscious habits is many of us don't even know that we're not tending to ourselves, that we are always showing up in service of someone else. So hitting pause, acknowledging the current, very non-judgmentally if possible, not to criticize ourselves for overstepping ourself in our relationships, but just to notice. And then once we've noticed, unfortunately, I would love to tell you the battle is over and it's not the case because this is where another whole group of us gets stuck, which is living into these new choices. Hitting pause, deciding to step out of the room while I tend to my own nervous system dysregulation before I enter into the upset that is on the other side of the door is a new action into unfamiliar territory. And I'm using these words very intentionally because to be human, we actually prefer the familiar. Those habits, while they might be imploding the life around us or exploding the life around us, or at minimum, we're not feeling fulfilled. They are our familiar zone of comfort. So the action of, and this was a big reason why I modified the way that I was working to include the body, our physical presence, actually doing something differently. Because until we build that bridge and work through now the discomfort of, in terms of this conversation, of putting myself first, of even creating space to say, well, what do I need as an individual that will be uncomfortable? It will bring up all of the discomfort that being the helper to someone else has allowed us to avoid. So celebrating the awareness is absolutely part of the journey as is creating then that space to be uncomfortable in new ways.
0: When I think about your work and what you've really helped me in the community with it's this, because I think so many mothers think, I've been in this old pattern. I can feel that I'm burning out. I'm trying to be everything to everyone. I'm going to change. And it takes so much to get that awareness, as you say. And I think what you have completely normalized is that when you start to put those new behaviors in practice, expect, for me, it's that critical questioning voice. So this afternoon, I'm exhausted. I sit down, I have a cup of tea. The house is a mess. There's tons of emails I've not replied to. And my critic starts, You're never going to be successful if you keep sitting down for cups of tea, you know, (laughs) and I just notice it. But I think it's so brilliant the way that you normalize that, because I think often change is perceived as, oh, once you know what you want to change, you just go and change it. And I think your work and the way you position it as that's almost when the small incremental changes
1: begin and to build up from there. 100%. And for a long time, Zoe, I actually would define those very relentless, very repetitive voices, much like yours. You're never going to get anywhere if you keep sitting down from a cup of tea. I would interpret that to be my intuition, this guidance that's directing me away from this you know, area that's not for me. And I would hear myself using all of this language, having the idea that we all do, which I continue to believe, though I know now that those repetitive narrations, voices, the things that tell us the same stories on repeat... Aren't actually a voice of our intuition at all. And oftentimes it's the voice of a dysregulated nervous system of circumstances that occurred earlier in life, sometimes even voices of other people who, when we're a child trying to make sense of the world around us, the more other people are narrating aloud what perception they're having of us, of our behaviors, of our abilities or inabilities, the more it is likely then that we internalize that and then assume just like I did that that is us, the voice in our head. So saying all of that to say, the more we get grounded and centered and the more repetitive these same stories are that most of us tell ourselves day in and day out, I assure you that isn't that language of your intuition. Your language of your intuition speaks from a deeper place, a place in connection with our body. So, the second it's coming again from a repetitive voice in our head, it's probably something we've been listening to for quite some time. Though, again, to speak to this conversation about being in presence and awareness, once I see how relentless it is, how it is coloring how I feel and what I do next, now I can over time create some space for new choices in alignment with that deeper intuitive voice. How do I create that space? Learning when we're not present to ourselves, As simplistic as that sounds, however it is you meet my work, whether it's in a book, I'm talking about on social media, you've entered into my membership, the Self Healer Circle, we will always talk about building that foundation of consciousness. First seeing, and actually we just opened up the membership this past month. So we have many new members coming in, all filtering to this awakened consciousness is what the course is called. And the number one thing, we very much have what, is akin to a Facebook, it's our own private internal portal, but members can write up their little, you know, posts about reflections, connect with other members, saying all that to say the most common thing I'm seeing about all of these new humans becoming conscious for the first time is, wow, I am really unconscious. So as simple as that action is to just see, and for a lot of people, I suggest we all walk around with cell phones or setting an alarm in your cell phone, putting a post-it note over that one mirror that you walk past when you go to the bathroom or whatever it is enlisting a buddy, a help, a support, someone on this journey to maybe text you sometime during your day. And when that alarm goes off, when you walk by that post-it, when your text dings or whatever it is for you, you can check in with your attention. Notice what are you doing? What are you paying attention to in that moment? And probably the large majority of you listening will notice that it wasn't fully immersed in whatever it is that you're doing, that you are probably lost in thought or your attention was somewhere else entirely. Maybe you were worrying about a fight that happened in the morning or fearing something that's happening tomorrow. When we notice, again, all of the different places yet we're going about life in that blind autopilot, now we can begin to create that space to not only see... All of those habits and patterns usually reflected in the repetitiveness of the narratives in our mind, the same feelings we always seem to find ourselves stuck in, we can then create new choices in that moment. But again, as simple as the task of becoming conscious is, it is the consistent practice of being able to at any time say... I want to be fully present to what's happening. I want to get out of the distractions of my mind. And that begins for most of us by seeing how distracted we are and how much those ingrained habits and patterns are directing our life. Because if we're not showing up to consciously choose, something else is narrating literally our life for us. And oftentimes that's in those habits formed in childhood and repeat it when we're not consciously aware of it. So setting those alarms, committing to that consistent practice first of just tuning in to what's happening outside of you and within you will then give you the opportunity to make new choices. And I love the way you just described that so
0: simplistically, but so articulately, you know, that these autopilot conditioned beliefs, behaviors get set up in childhood And then we just walk through life. And I gosh, I remember the moment. I had a moment where I awoke to this and I was walking down the street and it was just mind-blowing. And I realized I had this negative narrative in my head and it had always been there. And things actually never been the same since. I think the moment that you witness it, that's the one degree shift that I needed. It's so powerful. And you mentioned nervous system and regulation a few times. And I really wanted to dive in to this with you because and I'd love to get your view on this, but I see an explosion in the parenting industry right now. So many scripts, tips, hints, and in a way it's fantastic. In a way, what I notice in my life is that if I don't have a regulated system, if I'm not regulated, I can be saying all the right scripts in the world. I can be reading all the books. None of it seems to work. What seems to work is when I regulate, ground myself, it almost doesn't matter as much. The words that I say to my children, it just works easier. Does that make sense that I would be experiencing that?
1: 100%. I mean, we are intuitive, energetic creatures whose nervous system is always scanning on alert for other energies, for happenings, always geared, looking for the possible threat at hand. So to simplify that, we could be saying one thing And energetically, we're communicating a completely different thing. And because one of the main tasks, which is why parenthood is an entire, is enormous of a job as the language really that comes to mind is to create that safe container, to create the safe environment, which begins in the nervous system in your own body. So again, this is why do as I say, not as I do, isn't the reality that we're going to experience. We are always attuning to the energies of other people around us. And even if we have someone saying the right things and their nervous system is in their own stress response, their muscles are tense, their heart is beating so fast, and they're telling you to calm down, you're going to feel the energy that their body is communicating. And this evolved actually out of our own survival, our own ability to join together in a band or a group group of other humans and to have that verbal, that language list, I should say, communication system, being able to attune and notice if there is a happening in the other side of town, having it communicated through town will increase the likelihood of you finding safety in that moment so we are wired to connect with other people and there's value in having that nonverbal communication system which is always sending signals to other people which is why i'm sure listeners who have had the same experience i'm saying the right things yet I'm not getting the change. And because the message your body might be sending is completely in opposition to what you're very well intentionally trying to speak. It goes back to what we were saying right up top, doesn't it? That
0: it's so counterintuitive for parents to tend to ourselves first. But personally, I'm coming to see it's the most effective parenting strategy out there. Get yourself
1: grounded, regulated, conscious, and that's why these, you know, actions of self-care, centering them around first and foremost, even just compassionate nervous system awareness. I'm imagining some of you listening may be like, oh geez, I do. I scream, I yell when I'm upset at my child, and that's not how I want to react. Or I shut down completely. I, you know, I avoid them, I ice them. I can't even be around them when they're in this state of upset. And I'm really simplifying and generalizing all of the spectrum of things that you might, as a listener, be feeling shameful of because in your heart of hearts, you very much compassionately want to create that safe space that I was just discussing. Be that point of contact of regulation, though because of your own past circumstances, you know, environments you grew up in, tools that were modeled, the lack of safety that I imagine you had with your own caregivers has now created a circumstance of reactivity where no matter how much you want differently, Until, of course, you begin to create that safety for yourself, which might mean like earlier we were sharing, not going into that room immediately, delaying so that you can embody yourself, notice that you are reactive and feeling really tense. So if you do open that door, it might be the straw that broke the camel's back and now you are yelling. So if you can give yourself this moment of grounded presence, maybe some deep belly breathing to calm that quickened breath to regulate, that might actually open up the possibility to respond in that new way. Because what we will all do as humans, when our nervous system is dysregulated, which happens when we are feeling threatened, we'll return to those earliest strategies of screaming, of yelling, of shutting down, of icing, even if we quote unquote know better, because that's all wired again into our subconscious, literally into our nervous system. And it's the only way that at one time we were able to create safety. So we keep throwing that assumption over our current moments. In the meantime, we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our loved ones. Because there is a part in our heart that feels very shameful after the fact. It just connects
0: me with so much compassion for all parents, especially mothers, because it's so stress inducing, particularly being around young children who just are, you know, <laughs> so stressful. And it's fascinating my experience with this because I noticed when my little one was quite little and she would start to have very big emotions, I would dissociate. Because exactly as you're describing, that's how I handled big emotion. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I am dissociating when she needs me most. I then went back to, I'd been in therapy a long time, but I went back to therapy when she was six months to unpack all of that. And it was just mind blowing to me, but it makes complete sense. In times of stress, I've got six month old, unconsolably crying. My nervous system can't handle that. And I would literally dissociate, wander off in my mind. I have so much compassion for me and for all mothers that experience that or the other side, you know, screaming, shouting,
1: you know, the range of what our nervous system can do. I really appreciate you sharing that Zoe. And I appreciate hearing you intro the opportunity, the space for compassion for yourself too, because the little you, the child that was once a child that I'm assuming to some extent had the unavailability right, of caregivers and childhood enough to navigate emotion so much that you did feel overwhelmed, much like I did having a dissociated parent, everything was overwhelming. So I dissociated, I disconnected just like I saw mom do. I'm really happy to hear the compassion held for yourself because there is that little being that in your own emotional world, probably disconnect. just like you said, every time things feel so emotional. So not only are we doing it for all of you listening that are parents and caregiving, I'm not able to show up or be present or I explode emotionally when my child is having an emotion, chances are you don't give yourself the space to be with in your own presence of your own emotions, because again, you adapt it, that state of disconnection or explosion, whatever it might be for you, because you didn't have that in yourself in childhood. And it's, again, we can only give or meet someone in our depth of knowing ourselves. which means how present am I to the different emotions I'm having? Am I able to navigate them and remain grounded and as responsive as possible so that then I can do that in presence of now my child who I'm modeling doing that for? I mean, you're spot on. That's exactly the work that I did. I had luckily
0: a great therapist and we just practiced anger. We practiced anger loads, getting angry. We practiced uncontrollable sobbing. We practiced it. And it was just absolutely fascinating. The more that I did that, now my children can have monumental meltdowns and I feel safe and grounded and I help them feel safe and grounded. And it's just, I get emotional talking about it because it's that cycle Had I not had the privilege in some way to access that ability, you know, I would have kept dissociating and then my children would have likely, who knows, they could have then gone on to learn that dissociative pattern as well. And so it would have carried on.
1: And I think this is one of those moments too, where it is like counterintuitive mixed with a little bit of, at least as far as I perceive it to be cultural messaging that we should, I think a lot of us are given the belief again, because of the limitations, lack of resources in what we were taught in our childhood. And again, I think some of it is reflected societally that the goal is to not be bothered, to go through life emotionless or just kind of coasting on an okay, you know, plateau. And that isn't in my opinion, what life's about. Life is about navigating all of the different colors of the emotional experience that living is. So it's so beautiful to even hear you describe so much of your own healing was getting in touch with your own emotions, not to just paint this worry-free, happy all the time experience for your children that actually you allowing your anger, your rage, whatever it is for you, your sadness to be present, allowed then the presence of emotions in a safe contained way for our children, because that is our goal. That is how we develop stress or emotional resilience is by having emotions in that safe container, not losing the connections with those who matter the most to us. We might need... space, but our relationship isn't threatened. We can return, repair, reconnect in those moments. That is the greatest gift of navigating the human experience because emotions will forevermore and we want them to continue to be part of our experience because they're valuable. They give us life. They give us information. And again, I think some of us have been raised either within systems that weren't safe to express emotions or some of us do get this idea culturally that again, the idea is to be happy all the time or joyful all the time. We can't have those emotions without the rest of the emotional spectrum.
0: Especially for mothers, you know, I'll sometimes get messages saying, I cried in front of my child. Have I damaged them forever? It's like, you know, and I think that's a very real concern because absolutely mothers, you know, even the way that mothers are portrayed in the media is very stoic, very balanced, never losing it. I just want to linger on dysregulation for a little bit longer because I think it is so important and powerful. And I wonder, are there things that mothers can do in the moment? And they might not know that language to put to it, because I guess it's a bit of a therapeutic word, isn't it? Dysregulation. But they might just know, I feel rage. I feel like my body's floating off, or I feel like I just want to run and hide. What can someone do
1: in that moment? I want to go back to what you're kind of just offering here in terms of this stoic presentation and this underlying fear that I do think a lot of us have, which is this idea of, I don't want to worry my child by showing them my upset. I don't want to give them something else to be, you know, scared of. Though I think the most scary thing, because bringing this even full circle again... Children are attuned. They're gonna know if something's energetically up with you. I know in my family, while nothing was talked about in terms of what was going on, namely with health-related concerns in my home, I felt it. There would be an agitation in the air. There might be more arguments or conflict as a result of it, or there was an air of worry that no one, was giving language to. And so feeling so alone that I was attuned to, hey, something's up and no one's telling me about it. That is, I think, what creates that overwhelming stress in the body and all then of those ways that we've habitually learned to cope with that. So saying this to say, in terms of the practical suggestion, giving parents the opportunity to be okay with their feelings. And again, reminding us that this is a two-step process Conceptually, you might be like, okay, I'm okay with my feelings, and then putting into action, beginning to show, communicate feelings around in presence of your child to your child, narrating what you're feeling in that moment, and or that you need to take space to go regulate what you're feeling might be when we enter that unfamiliar space of now doing something different and if you didn't have that safe container that attuned parent that I know I didn't have in childhood it will feel very unfamiliar and very vulnerable to begin to give life to your emotions so again while we can conceptually be like yes I'm going to go start to show my child feelings now in action again anticipate that it will be difficult and the more we can build that bridge of consciousness because feelings and this conversation about the nervous system does map onto the body. I mean, earlier I even just described, our blood pressure, our heart rate changes. It can quicken when we're feeling stressed out. Our muscle tension begins to shift and change. Our muscles become more tense, ready for action as we're becoming stressed out. Our breathing is another area that's really greatly impacted in tandem, I should say, with our stress level. The more stress we become, the quicker our breath is likely to become. So this assumes that we're connected to our body, which means we've done those consciousness check-ins and more often than not, we're re-attuning to our physical presence, maybe in just those three areas. When that alarm goes off, you notice where your attention was or wasn't and you bring it back to your body and you quickly say, okay, how are my muscles? Am I feeling tension anywhere? How's my breath? Is it calm and easy and grounded or is it so quick it's almost... My heart's coming out of my chest. Similarly, can you feel your heart? Is it coming out of your chest? You can begin to note those different markers because in real time, as you're going about your day and as you're learning how to be more present to your body, as you start to feel your nervous system activate your blood pressure start to increase. You might feel flushed and hot. You might begin to sweat. Your breath is quickening. Your muscles are tensing. That's bringing you more likely closer to those old habitual reactions, whether it's screaming and yelling, whether it's shutting down. Now, this assumes that I'm present in my body at those times, which is why we want to practice that body consciousness all of the time. Because it's in those moments where we're locked and loaded, when stress is happening and our child is upset, that it's so easy. To shift right back into that autopilot and to catch ourselves mid screaming or mid shutting down. So, this is where it's that consistent practice, building that reconnective bridge so that in real time, as stress is happening around me and my body is starting to get activated and I'm getting closer to those reactions that I want to avoid, I can hit pause. I can take that moment of delay and do some deep belly breathing to calm my breath down before I open the door. And again, I'm laboring this point because I think what is important to take home is that as much as we want it to be in those moments, Just what do I do differently when my child is screaming in front of me? It's so much more about the consistent habits that we've created to build the foundation, to be present to ourselves in those moments, to notice I'm getting close to that point of no return and I'm getting ready to say and react in those old ways I want to avoid. So I'm going to intervene and make a new choice here now while I can, while I have access to it before I'm locked and loaded in that shameful autopilot that I'm going to regret and feel bad about later. It's like when I'm reversing my car, <laughs>
0: bear with me, there's like a green zone and it's like beeping, beep, beep. And then I'm in Mambo and it's going, beep. And then I remember it's going, beep. It's like, how can I, when I'm looking in my reverse mirror, and my car's beeping at me, when the beeps are slow, how can I stop there before I keep going and crunch? And I think that's so powerful for people to hear about before you even get to that moment. How does someone who is a human, so they are going to mess up, make mistakes, shout when they don't want to, disassociate when they don't want to, all of it, how does someone stop
1: that shame spiral? noticing first and foremost, that old critical voice, that shaming voice, that judgmental voice, whatever it is, noticing when it's apparent, when it's present. Because again, we all, I think, have this idea and we set ourselves up to disappoint ourselves that now that I know these tools and now that I'm going to do something different and I'm going to make room for this compassion that, you know, this part of the conversation is very much about holding space for all of the different habitual ways we've learned to cope in a very compassionate way that suddenly all those judgmental voices that I've been living with for my entire life are just gonna get on board, go away, and give me the space for that compassionate presence. And that's absolutely not gonna be the case. At minimum, we're likely gonna be doing something new so that voice of resistance is going to be there. And typically that critical voice that so many of us have developed in childhood based on our early circumstances will pop up. It will begin to berate us or judge us or tell us what we haven't done enough of yet, and noticing, as simple as that sounds as an idea, when we notice that that voice is present and don't even judge ourselves for the judgmental voice that has now come to presence, we then give ourselves the opportunity to shift our attention away, not to berate ourselves that it's there. If that's typically present to ourselves, if we are very critical of ourselves, this is a prime moment where it's going to. Pop up, be at the ready. And then it's the consistent refocusing of our attention away, not to judge ourselves for that judgment. It is functioning to just keep us safe in those habitual patterns, operating with these old beliefs about ourselves that we are unworthy or unlovable and just confirming that belief now and we're no longer going to confirm that. We're going to notice its presence and then refocus our attention away, maybe to do that body-based check-in that we just talked about. Maybe in that moment, instead of paying attention to the judgmental thought, you might do that quick scan, checking in with your breath, checking in with your heart, checking in with your muscles when you talk about understanding where these patterns
0: come from, I find that's such a shortcut to compassion. Because when I do find myself doing an old pattern, I say to myself these days, Zoe, this was 35 however many years in the making. It's all good. It's all good. Whereas I think before you know my early days of the sort of self-development world where it was like change your thoughts change your life and there was an absence of that understanding around the development of our early patterns and our nervous system i would beat myself up then we've changed your thoughts why am i still doing this why am i still doing this and now i'm like this is just particularly knowing that under times of stress we're more likely to fall back on odd patterns That is just it for me. There's nothing more stressful for me than trying to make tea for my kids and everyone's screaming at me and the work stuff's pinging and it's like chaos. There's so much cortisol in my
1: body. And just reminding myself of that, it's such a shortcut to compassion. I appreciate you sharing that, Zoe. And that is the human experience is that we're not always going to have our resources available. We're not always going to be sleeping well, eating well, managing our stress well. And again, something I see reflected in, in a lot of the new members are you know, that unrealistic expectation that we always maintain this grounded consciousness, this compassionate heart space. And that's just not... True. Life is going to happen around us. And again, there are going to be nights where we don't sleep well for many different reasons, where we're not eating well, where many people do need things from us, you know, and our stress level is high and we might not maintain consciousness. We might fall into those old habits. As long as we are consciously aware and become present, there are many moments where I decide to just tune out, veg out, you know, very much look like I'm dissociated. I am somewhere else entirely because that's all my body could do at that time i had no resources left i'm not sleeping i have too much stress so vegging for me you know with a mindless tv show for a couple hours at a time it's this unrealistic expectation that we are consciously present grounded connected being at all times and sometimes even that awareness that that's just not possible will give us the opportunity to not only be compassionate but maybe to tend to ourselves to allow us to veg out to stay in bed and rest a bit more it's not always i think about the doing it's a lot about reframing what we're expecting of our physical system that does deplete in resources at some point, unless we're filling them back up, we're not going to have the ability to be conscious to make these new choices into the future.
0: So true. Thank you again for just normalizing that. Because I think people put you on a pedestal as well, Dr. Nicole. I think they think Dr. Nicole never has, you know, (laughs) those reach out moments. And I know you share so honestly. And I think This as well for parents is where your how to repair is also really powerful. You know, for me, it's like, if I know how to repair well, I can own my side of the street. I can repair with my children, say sorry, own it. Again, it's such a shortcut to compassion for
1: when I get it wrong. 100%. And I think the reality, Zoe, is very few of us were modeled or had the experience of repair in relationships you know, either explosions happen and nothing ever kind of gets resolved. It just continues to be a sticking or a conflictual point in our life or in our relationship experience. Some of us have, you know, conflict that we just avoid entirely. We don't even label things as being a problem so that we don't get into that conflict that we then need to repair from. Others, when we have those moments of disconnection, things are just kind of swept under the rug and assumed that life just continues on however long you know needs to go by between the person who's upset becoming unupset and then nothing is even addressed in terms of the conflict itself. And then there's many other versions of why we become the adult who doesn't know how to repair, who doesn't know how to acknowledge or take responsibility for the role in the conflict and who doesn't then know how to have a conversation on the other side of conflict where both people are being hurt Heard, and not one person is being taken a priority, but the best interest of the relationship itself becomes a point of negotiation. And again, for many different reasons, I know in my own life, I was never modeled that whenever conflict happened. And it was either my dad was yelling around the conflict or my mom, when it got so great, she would ice, she would stop speaking. And then it was as if when my dad was done with his emotional upset and when my mom was ready to re-engage, you know, with whomever it was that had upset her life just went on. Nothing was talked about. There was no room for how anyone felt about the explosion or the disconnection. It was as if it never happened. So as painful as it is to admit, I struggle in the same ways. I can either explode on my partners when I'm upset or distance, ice, make them pay by removing my presence. And it's very uncomfortable for me to have a conversation after the fact, to bring up the conflict because there's a very big part of me that conflict was scary. It meant explosive behaviors or a disconnection from my loved one, both things that I want to avoid. So being able to even bring to the table before it gets to the conflict, a conversation about what's not working is so uncomfortable, let alone after I've behaved shamefully and now I have to take responsibility for it. Very uncomfortable. Again, not because I'm a bad, mean person, because like many of you listening, we weren't taught how to do that. So being able to repair means acknowledging that something wasn't working, whether or not it exploded or imploded, to own the role that you played and to then be an active participant in creating a solution that works for both people.
0: It's so true and someone I didn't know very well watched me repair to one of my girls and they were horrified. They said, it was a guy, what are you doing? If you apologize to your children, they will have no respect for your authority. And I thought, isn't that absolutely fascinating? But I wonder how many people do have that fear. I think because so many of us were never apologised to as children, you know, apologizing to our children and repairing can feel disconcerting at best, like somehow we're giving our power away at worst.
1: It is such a gift to model the humanness of life the messiness of life, to own whatever role that you played that you now feel the need to apologize for. I think that's the most powerful teaching is to empower someone to live in their own space, to take responsibility for the choices that might have been unconscious. Again, just to tie this whole conversation together, wired into our, you know, our mind and our body. though so is Part of our responsibility, showing a child that I think is the greatest gift of empowerment, not disempowering at all. Though, again, for many different reasons, I do think that's a very common belief um, that parents have that this individual, you know, shared with you, which is this idea that I shouldn't show a vulnerability, a weakness, a wrong quote unquote-ness by having to admit a wrongdoing that would necessitate an apology. And again, I think it's the farthest thing from disempowering. I think it's an incredible teaching to show that we are all humans. We all have messy moments. And then to increase the likelihood of the child learning now how to assume responsibility for themselves and to acknowledge and admit when they do make choices that harm their loved ones and being able to then come back to the table and admit their role, their hurt, the pain that they cause, and then work toward that solution in the future. And without that, I do think a lot of us will avoid that and ultimately disempower ourselves and our children. You know, I've done
0: this for a while with my girls now, and now with each other, they'll say, I'm really sorry. And I can hear them owning it, particularly my seven-year-old. She'll say, I'm really sorry. I was just really angry then. And she'll say, can I make it up to you? And my little one normally says something like, never do it again. But it's just really cute to see that between them. It's incredible. I reached out to my community for some questions and I got inundated. And I wanted to ask you if you're up for that. I'm up for it. Okay. So the first one is how to be more assertive when you have been conditioned to be passive your
1: whole life relating to this big time, um, all of us people pleasers out there and again, celebrating whoever it was that asked this, the awareness of the habitual pattern of passivity, the people pleasing, right? Again, mapping this onto the nervous system, chances are being passive, tending to the environment around you was probably your predominant, your most consistent way of Creating safety. If we can anticipate, right, not be a wallflower, not really participate in what might be escalating or the stress at hand, or if I can squash the issue by tending to it before it even becomes an issue, then I can keep myself safe. So, having the awareness of I have this tendency to being passive, whatever that means for the listener or the person who asked the question, is the first step in creating that space. So in real time, as you notice whatever pattern it is in passivity, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're getting ready to do, maybe you're not even pausing to check in with you in an assertive way, that then will be, I think, the most important consistent step you can build into your daily habits, which is a point of checking in with me. Because to be able to assert our needs, first and foremost, we need to be able to identify our needs. And just being someone who's passive, people-pleasing, always looking outward, which is usually, again, that kind of fawn response, uh, creating safety by looking, tending. Outside of me, I would imagine, and maybe this isn't the case for the person who asked the question, though, I would imagine there might be that disconnection where I don't even necessarily know what I want to assert because I don't even have comfortable safety in allowing myself to want what i want and then of course if we've already built that bridge and i know what i want i just feel bad, worried, insert whatever it is, fearing what you will do, how you will react, this connection I will lose if I now voice in this assertive, direct way what it is that I want or what I need. Now you can create some space to work through the very real discomfort of fears that'll happen before you do it, of reactivity that might happen if this person has come to expect you to be passive in the way and now you're not being passive. It might violate their expectation. They might become upset in whatever way. Now you have some space to embed those new choices, but celebrating, I think that awareness first of those old habits, maybe having a little bit of understanding of where they come from, making sure that you have the space to know what you want to assert, which is a process in and of itself, reattuning to our bodies, to our emotions, and then creating the space to actualize that assertion in the relationships. Where does that people
0: pleasing come from? Where does that get set up? To me, it feels like every mother I speak to says, I have these tendencies
1: Yeah, I think, again, as most things, they originate in our childhood environments, whatever circumstances that might have been happening externally to the home in terms of the socio-political context, the messaging, I think that so many of us get around our religious institutions, our cultural institutions. A lot of times they fall along these gendered lines and what we're meant or tasked to do in life, which I think a lot of times when it's Individuals who identify as women. It's, you know, this idea of caretaking, you know, instilled at in us when we have dolls that we're tending to from a young age. So ultimately, and for reasons based in when I don't have safety in my home, when I've had to learn how to maintain connections by tending to other people, by avoiding the explosive parent, by parenting my siblings because my parents are physically absent or emotionally absent, parenting myself, you know, whatever kind of road it is before long, the safety I feel is in by tending the environment, is by becoming this helper individual, this caretaker of others. And then we continue our lives and our relationships. And before long, we're solely embodying that role. And then if we do decide to have children now, what better an objective being to have to care for than the little child that I've created that's now in front of me literally needing me. Though again, as most of our habits, our patterns that many of us are even labeling as our personality, most of them were those adaptations to the earliest environment, including this people pleasing, which maps onto the fawn nervous system response of tending to the world to keep myself safe from the possible threat if the world goes in whatever direction I'm fearing.
0: Just to underscore that, I feel it's so important because often unconsciously I see it in myself sometimes I reward that behavior I notice it in myself when Jessie is really quote-unquote good it's easier for me as a parent right let's just face it it's easier and I have to really watch that because I was definitely in recovery from people pleasing and I have to just remind myself that even though it's easier for me she's being just as quote-unquote good when she's being explosive and boundaryed with me and I totally can see how easy it is, particularly girls, I think, to get conditioned like this. Because as the parent,
1: it's easier. It just is when your child is pleasing you. Absolutely. I mean, emotions are difficult. You know, even certain aspects of just our unique individual self-expression for some of us, depending on, again, what space we had to embody our true self in childhood can be really challenging, right? Now you have this little mini being who in a lot of ways reflects similarity, dissimilarity, and we have all of these, you know, ideas wrapped up in it and it's brave and it's honest. And I really appreciate that you kind of seeing and talking about all of the the different layers of the reality that, you know what, sometimes I do want certain people to act a certain way because it makes my life easier. you know. And there's all of these subtle ways then in those moments that we do validate, then our children are picking up on it. So even turning the spotlight, having this conversation is such a gift for you, for your children, for your family, for me listening, for all of the listeners, because it is that radical honesty. It's not even being shameful. That's natural. I like to curate my life. I like my partners to be a certain way because it makes me feel more comfortable. Though again, that isn't necessarily always living space for the normal uniqueness and variations in humans. And again, the emotional experience of being human. It's
0: so true. Okay, next one. How do I give myself permission
1: to feel contentment when for so long I couldn't? Great important question. I think here in contentment, we could insert anything, joy, peace, happiness. And again, going back to a recurring theme, which is that which is not comfortable. If contentment hasn't been a state you've been able to access frequently, if at all, then allowing yourself, right? Again, I want to break down this idea of allowing So, you know, kind of into two steps. You could hear me say, and you could hear how important it is to allow contentment in, to embrace it, to embody it. And then building that bridge to actually allow contentment in, which happens in a Peaceful, grounded, present nervous system is a whole other task of making the choice to, again, for a lot of us, include our body. Especially when I hear a word like contentment, the nervous system kind of pings to me. To feel content, we need to be able to be still, to be peaceful, to be attuned to whatever it is that we're experiencing in the moment, to feel contented by, connected to. That's what is coming up for me. And all of that is a byproduct of what state of regulation or dysregulation our nervous system is in. If I'm feeling or perceiving a stressor, even if one isn't objectively present and my muscles are tense, like we were talking about earlier, I'm in survival mode. I'm not interested in contentment. I'm not interested in joy and pleasure. There's no possibility for that in this moment because in this moment, my body is gonna send the messages to my mind that it's prioritizing my survival. And those things, and this is again why I'm laboring this point because so many of us, I know all I've ever wanted, I'm a hippie at heart. I self-proclaimed all I want is peace and freedom. Peace to just live in a quiet moment and the freedom to choose what I want to choose in any given moment. Yet in reality, until I got my nervous system on board to see how disconnected I was from every moment, how I felt so unsafe in my body that in reality, I could proclaim until I'm blue in the face that I want peace and freedom. And for this listener, contentment. Though in the lived experience, it doesn't feel safe. It feels unfamiliar. It's actually foreign for my nervous system to shift from that sympathetic state of being on fight or flight at the ready for the threat into that peaceful state of contentment, of peace, of presence, of joy. Again, insert whatever it is. So we can know the tools and then we can teach our body how to become familiar with contentment. Because the reality, I love this question is, For a lot of us, safety doesn't feel safe. Peace doesn't feel safe. Joy and contentment don't feel safe to our bodies because we never had the opportunity to consistently embody that emotional space. And if we did, it was short-lived. It was followed by the next straw that broke the next camel's back. So for some of us even, it becomes a marker of the possible threat that's around the corner. You hear so many people
0: say that, don't you? Everything's good, but I'm waiting for something to go wrong. That's that alert, isn't it? Next one, I can't wait to hear your answer to this. It's from Joe, family dynamics. There is tension between my spouse and I over toxic in-laws. How do I set boundaries when the other
1: person doesn't think it's an issue? When we're navigating you know, any relationship with another human being who has their own beliefs, their perception, their lived experience. And when we're trying to parent and you know create boundaries for our family system, it does become very much more complicated. And I get this question asked in many different versions where somehow the the bottom line is, right? How do I get something outside of me to change? Someone to see something different, someone to want to then do differently. And ultimately the answer is always some version of what we can really focus on, which is not changing, getting them to see, which is us creating the circumstances that work for us. So what this might mean without knowing the context of the particular question, right? If I need to navigate or change the way we're interacting with in-laws, this actually came up early in my relationship with Lolly, who early on, she would notice a pattern for me of agitation. I was living in Philadelphia. My family was in neighboring New Jersey, so I had a lot of opportunity to see them face-to-face for family meals, for weekends at their house, and I saw them in presence a lot. And what would happen for several days before that event, during the event and after the event, is I would get agitated. I would get stressed out thinking about going home, being home with my family, and that agitation would come out in the relationship with Lolly. I would bicker. I would be irritated with her. I would take my stress out in her relationship or in my relationship with her. And we had to have a you know very difficult conversation in the beginning of, as this pattern was being brought to my attention, where Lolly had to come to me and say, I don't really feel comfortable or safe, or it's not pleasant for me to go to your family anymore because you are so dysregulated when you're there that if I'm being honest and she wasn't wrong, I was mean to her when we would go. So she said, I completely respect You wanting to have a relationship with your family. I'm just sharing you from my perspective how my experience of these moments of visits are for me. And for me, it doesn't feel safe to go to be alongside of your parents and to be torn down and criticized. And as I was getting, taking all my irritation out with her, and as painful as it was, as much as I wanted to, and I did at moments say, you're unsupportive, you don't get it, you know, how dare you. When I really pulled back, I valued. That information because what I never want to create a circumstance. And she was right. All of this agitation that I didn't understand, I didn't have an outlet for, I wasn't able to yet create boundaries with my family and say, you know what? I can't come over this frequently. I can't come over for this long of a period of time. I was just displacing onto her. So to simplify the answer to this question, understanding we all have unique circumstances, getting clear on what boundaries we need, regardless of if this person's going to see our perspective, get it, is going to be an important step for the listener, for the asker of this particular question. And then to Begin to create and maintain those boundaries, limiting maybe visits away or you decide you're not going to go and your partner can go visit, you know, their family or maybe holidays need to be renegotiated and you need to commit to doing something differently because ultimately that's then how long-term change happens because in process of, right... I'm feeling a little bit safer. Lolly was able to get her needs met of not having these explosive moments between us. And over time, I was able to get a little more clear on how my family weekends were for me and able to see, you know what, Nicole, you're being wretched to your partner because you're so stressed out. You need some boundaries. And then I created boundaries with my family, not because Lolly told me, not because she gave me an ultimatum and stopped coming because I was able to be really honest with what I needed and have more confidence in creating now that new space for myself.
0: Sounds like she just gave us all a masterclass in loving, compassionate boundaries. I think boundaries get so misunderstood that they're, they're like weaponized. And it sounds like Lolly just, you know, lovingly like you go, I love you, have a good time. But for me, I'm going to do this. And it's just fascinating that when boundaries are used in that way, I think it does facilitate or can facilitate, as you say, the awareness in the other without trying to change them. That's the thing. Boundaries are for us, aren't they? They're for us. They're not to try and change the
1: other. Yes. And I think that's a great way to to think about going into them, right? Assuming nothing changes from your end on your perspective in your action, what do I need to do to feel differently, to navigate this situation in a different way? And I think that that can be the most compassionate gift because over time, just to play the tape out, if she had not said anything over time, she would have become likely so angry, so resentful at me for how she was feeling in these recurring circumstances. When again, I can make a case that it wasn't necessarily me at all. That was the problem. It was all of these old coping mechanisms that of course, when I'm with my family came to the surface. So she wasn't being unloving to me at all. She was just pointing out how these adaptations were affecting her back to this, even the conversation about repair, right? Allowing someone else to have a different experience of our experience and then allowing them to create the boundary. And I do think you're right, Zoe. We weaponize them. We do put up a boundary focused more on how I'm going to get you to stop doing or to do differently instead of just continuing to affirm, you just keep going as you are. I'm going to do this for me, for space I need to meet my needs.
0: Beautiful. I've got about 15 others. We were sent in hundreds. Maybe we need to do a special with you where we just... (laughs) A QA and special, I'm down for yeah, it. that'd be amazing. Well, that's what your self circle's for, isn't it? So people can join that if they want more of you. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift
1: to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I'm sure at this point in the conversation, this might not come as a surprise. I would give the gift of compassion Not just the idea of it, the actual embodied practice, even if it's just for a space, a second, a moment in time where you're able to see yourself, accept yourself, be with yourself in a compassionate, holding, safe, secure container, even if you don't like, and that voice of judgment is coming up, necessarily what you see, when we can be compassionate to all aspects of ourself and our journey, I believe that's the greatest gift, even for those of us who don't choose to have children, that we can impact all of Humanity. And it's definitely going to be the greatest gift that you can give to those of us who are in care of or raising the little ones around us is that compassion. So that is the gift that I think keeps on giving. And I believe it's a life-changing gift for humanity is having that moment of pause and again to expand beyond just the idea of it'd be nice to feel, you know, securely connected and trust of myself in compassion of myself, but actually to begin to expand into that practice of allowing ourselves first, just to be in our own presence and allows us to compassionately hold space for all that is us.
0: Thank you. And tell us about the self healer circle. You mentioned you've just opened up. When are
1: you next opening up or anything else that you want to tell the mother kind community about? So I first want to point everyone to whatever social media platform they prefer to consume their content on to give me a search, the holistic psychologist to utilize any and all of the free resources. These are conversations that, you know, the community is having on the daily um, the community itself is so, so engaged. So even under the little meme that, you know, will pop up, there's so much deep, expanding, evolving, connecting conversation that is happening. So that's the first place that I want to point everyone because one of the biggest priorities for me, for my team here is to keep these conversations happening and accessible regardless of whatever resources you have available to yourselves, wherever in the world that you're tuning in is to be a part of this information and of this amazing community. And then of course, for those of you who are interested in joining the membership portion where it's a little more guided, there's content that comes out on a new topic each month. At this point, I think there's a weekly work or Q&A to speak to your point, an hour to ask questions, and also that private community forum away from social media, understanding that not everyone feels comfortable sharing of themselves. A lot of people I've been ha- giggling have family <laughs> that are also following the account. So a, a lot of people are wanting that safer, more contained space away from social media, and that is the self-healer circle. There's a website, theselfhealerscircle.com for you to get any and all information as well as to jump on the wait list because we did just open for enrollment in January. We opened three times a year. So we'll be due to open up again in May, though anyone who's interested can get all of the information on what it is to be a part of the circle and also to hop on the wait list if they are interested in getting the enrollment link when enrollment happens in a couple months.
0: Incredible. And just to say again, thank you so much for your time. I know how in demand you are and it just means the world that you speak to me and and the Malachyne community. So thank you again. And thank you again for the workbook. You know, I really think it is just such a gift. It is such a distillation of practical experience and deep knowledge. So thank
1: you again. Thank you, Zoe, for the opportunity to have another conversation with me and and for the work that you do, having these conversations with your incredible community day in and day out. And on that note, thank you all for listening. I truly, truly believe it is like the dominoes that we really can affect incredible lifetiming change. So the work that you're doing, the conversations that you're having, the tools that you're speaking about to your own community is, in my opinion, world changing. So thank you.
0: That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please do consider sharing it. That is how the Motherkind podcast has grown. You, my lovely listeners, sharing the episodes that you love. So please do share it. And if you have time, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It makes such a big difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this incredible content. So through August, we re-release our most popular episodes for the first six months of the year. So look out for those in your feed. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple, which over 70% of you do, then you can now subscribe to the podcast for just $3.99 a month. And you can support me and my very, very, very small team to keep putting out incredible content. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. And I will see you next time.